1: today on Cornerstone Connection with Pastor Gary Hamrick.
0: With
2: every sunrise. The issue is, will we allow the culture to influence us, or will we influence the culture more? We will all be facing the reality of the culture trying to encroach upon the church trying to shape the church trying to influence the church but the issue becomes will the church rise up and be an influencer of the culture and so paul is saying you need to be aware of the fact that these kind of things are in your culture but that god calls these things sinful
1: This is Cornerstone Connection, the radio ministry of Pastor Gary Hamrick of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. Pastor Gary is teaching through 1 Corinthians. When the Apostle Paul wrote his letter to the people of Corinth, they experienced much of the same attitude society has today. People share a view of entitlement, they are quick to sue and slow to forgive. In today's message, Pastor Gary urges forgiveness and reconciliation. Ultimately, will you allow culture to influence you or will you, as a part of a church, rise and influence society? Use today's message as a reminder to step above societal norms and follow God's ways instead. Be a beacon for others to follow. At the close of Pastor Gary's message today, I'll be sharing with you how you can get a copy of today's broadcast of Cornerstone Connection. Subscribe to the podcast or get in touch with us. But for now, let's join Pastor Gary in the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 6, with today's edition of Cornerstone Connection. 1 Corinthians
2: 6, verse 1 says, If any of you has a dispute with another, dare he take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of before the saints? Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if you are to judge the world, are you not competent to judge trivial cases? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more the things of this life? Therefore, if you have disputes about such matters, appoint as judges even men of little account in the church. I say this to shame you. Is it possible that there is nobody among you wise enough to judge a dispute between believers? But instead, one brother goes to law against another, and this in front of unbelievers. The very fact that you have lawsuits among you means you have been completely defeated already. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you yourselves cheat and do wrong, and you do this to your Brothers, So as we've been making our way through the book of 1 Corinthians, we have noted that this is a corrective epistle. There are a lot of things that the uh, church at Corinth is doing well. There are many things that they are not doing well. This is a church that Paul planted. He spent 18 months here. He gave a year and a half of his life to disciple them, get them up and running. But he was a missionary at heart. He, he was more of an apostle with an apostolic kind of a gifting where he started works but he didn't really stay there to pastor it he handed it off to a local pastor and then he went and planted another work so that was just the mo that's the way he functioned that was his giftings that was his calling but he's writing a letter to the church at Corinth that he loves and that he planted because they have several questions they are young in the Lord so they're growing in their faith they're growing in their understanding of some things that are right and some things that are wrong and Paul is going to address some answers that they have sought him concerning but not until until chapter 7 because if you'll just take a glance over to chapter 7 real quickly at verse 1 he says now for the matters you wrote about all right so you know he's going to spend the first half of this book the first six chapters just uh, kind of making some corrections and giving some exhortations, and he'll do that too through the course of the last half of this book, but uh, he doesn't get to specifically answering their questions that he wrote them, that he, that, uh, he was written about, until chapter 7. Uh, but overall, this is a church that is um, is out of control. They, they are fleshly, they, they have jealousy and quarreling among them, uh, they, they have Unnecessary elevation of spiritual leaders. They are getting drunk at communion. Uh, the Bible tells us they are uh, abusing spiritual gifts. They've got sexual immorality going on in the church that we talked about last week. That they are allowing without correcting. They're doing a disservice uh, to themselves as a as a body, and they're doing a disservice to the guy who's li- who's living in sexual sin in their congregation. So he's, Paul's correcting them about this. And then we come to chapter six, and here's something else they're doing wrong. They're suing the pants off each other. They're taking each other to court. Uh, For every little thing that they don't like about each other, they're suing each other. Now, you know, some people will say to me from time to time, Pastor G, don't you think the Bible is an old book? You know, how does it really apply to our lives? And I come to a chapter like 1 Corinthians 6, and I I think to myself, how do people wonder why the Bible is, why do they think that it isn't relevant to to their day? Because here we are as a very litigious society ourselves. In fact, I did a little homework and found out that, on average, Americans spend $250 billion a year in frivolous lawsuits, just suing each other, because we have nothing better to do, I suppose. And here are a couple of examples that I thought you might uh, be amused to hear. Different examples of frivolous lawsuits. Here's one, for example. It's entitled, Aunt Sue's 8-year-old nephew for $127,000 over what she calls a negligent hug. All right, this is how it goes. Hugs, even those from family members, can be uncomfortable and even unwanted. That's what one New York woman called in a recent, lo- in a recent lawsuit against her own nephew. Four years ago, Jennifer Connell attended the eighth birthday party of her nephew, Sean Tarala. Apparently, Tarala was so enthused at the presence of his Auntie Jen that he leapt into her arms. The jump caused Connell to fall to the ground, breaking her wrist. The next present Connell gave Tarala to unwrap was a $127,000 lawsuit. She sues her eight-year-old nephew. Connell named the boy as a defendant in a lawsuit for the cost of her legal bills, claiming her injuries were caused by her nephew's, quote, negligence and carelessness, arguing that the eight-year-old birthday boy should, quote, have known that a forceful greeting, such as the one delivered, by the defendant to the plaintiff, could cause harms and losses suffered by the plaintiff. Citing the difficulties she faced since injury, Connell attested in her lawsuit that she was, quote, at a party recently and it was difficult to hold her hors d'oeuvre plate. (laughs) After deliberating only 20 minutes, the jury returned, uh, awarding Connell nothing. How about this lawsuit? In January 2009... A Long Island, New York doctor, Richard Batista, was slapped with divorce papers from his cheating wife. He decided he'd had enough and sued her for the return of a gift he'd given her eight years prior. You know what the gift was? A kidney. (laughs) He sued to have it back, and he said, if it isn't feasible, I'll take $1.5 million. Or this lawsuit. Lauren Rosenberg decided to sue Google for an excess of $100,000 When Google Maps advised her to walk on the freeway to get to her destination, causing her to get hit by a car. (laughs) She also sued the driver of the car. Apparently, the directions took Rosenberg on Utah State Route 224, a busy freeway without sidewalks. Nonetheless, she meandered along the edge of the road, trusting an electronic device over her apparently missing common sense. Or this last one, this is one of my favorites. (laughs) In the 1990s, some of you were around maybe remember this one, Anheuser-Busch, the producers of of Budweiser, ran a series of ads in which two beautiful women come to life in front of two truck drivers drinking Budweiser. A Michigan man bought uh, bought a case of the beer, drank it, and failed to see two women materialize. (laughs) So he sued the company for false advertising asking for a sum in excess of $10,000. Thankfully, the court dismissed the suit, and the man returned penniless and dateless. All right? So that's the kind of thing that is happening in our world. Here's what Paul is saying uh, about civil lawsuits. Now, please understand, this is not criminal lawsuits that he's talking about. Criminal lawsuits need to be handled by the police and by a court of law. That's something different. But civil lawsuits... He tells us in this passage, there are three wrong assumptions about God, the church, and the legal system. And he's correcting the church at Corinth, and this is good and wise counsel for us as well. Here's the first wrong assumption. First wrong assumption, Paul says, is, is that we sometimes wrongly assume the judges in the world are more competent to arbitrate disputes between Christians than saints in the church. And that's the first five verses here. He says, again, if any of you has a dispute with another, dare he take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of before the saints. Now, saints is just a biblical term that means Christians. Saints, the hagiadzo, the ones who are made... Positionally right before God through a relationship with Jesus Christ—that's what makes us saints. Not that we're perfect people at all. He says in verse two, "Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if you are to judge the world, are you not competent to judge trivial cases? Do you not know that we will judge angels?" Now, what is that about? Why would we judge angels? It's a reference to fallen angels—the ones who have rebelled against God, the ones who are now presently in the spirit realm that we would otherwise call demons. Apparently, there's going to be a day of judgment, and God will entrust to the saints setting up kind of court that we will be entrusted with even judging the fallen angels and so paul says if you guys are going to be judging fallen angels and and the day of judgment what makes you think you can't settle disputes among yourselves instead you're taking them to judges obviously in our day some christians are godly uh, sorry some judges are godly christians and righteous people some judges are not they make no profession of faith whatsoever but if we can settle something within the, ch- within the church and arbitrate it between ourselves, why wouldn't we do that instead of taking it to, to judges who may not necessarily have any relationship with the Lord at all? So he says, how much more are the things of this life? In verse 4, therefore, if you have disputes about such matters, the point is, judges even men of little, little account in the church. He said, you should be able to take somebody of low position, doesn't even have to be a leader in the church, who should be able to arbitrate differences among yourselves. Don't assume that judges are able to make wiser decisions when it relates to civil matters within the church. We shouldn't be taking this out to court. We should be trying to arbitrate and settle disputes among ourselves. It it is a thing that I don't think a lot of Christians are aware of because too many Christians are suing each other. You know, there's there's a place at a time that maybe a lawsuit is necessary, but there are also a lot of unnecessary lawsuits between Christians that should rather be settled in the church instead of suing each other in court. And and we're we're abusing the legal system by not first working out these differences among ourselves. The second wrong assumption that he says, wrong assumption number two, is that Christians suing Christians won't have any impact uh, on on their witness. Uh, But but that isn't true. It will impact their witness. That's why he says in verse 6, but instead one brother goes to law against another, and this in front of unbelievers, exclamation mark. He's like, this is not a good example. We're not setting a good example in front of the unbelievers when Christians are suing each other like this. So it does affect our witness, and we have to be aware of this. We shouldn't be rushing into uh, legal matters with each other. We should be settling them ourselves. And then the third wrong assumption is that we are entitled. Yeah, that's why we sue each other, because we think we're entitled. Somebody wronged us, I need to get something back, I need damages, I need compensation, so uh, I'm entitled. But he he dismantles that argument, verses 7 and 8. He says, the very fact that you have lawsuits among you means you have been completely defeated already. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you yourselves cheat and do wrong, and you do this to your brother's. Now, again, they're rhetorical questions, but he's challenging us. You know, why, why not rather be wronged than cheated? You know, you know why somebody doesn't want to be wronged or cheated? Because people want to extract their pound of flesh out of somebody else because they think they're entitled. And as Christians, you know, sometimes what we need to do is just forgive the debt and forgive the wrong. The Bible says it is the glory of a man or woman. It's a generic term. It is the glory of a man to overlook an offense. And sometimes... The greatest remedy to a wrong is not to sue them, it is to forgive them. Again, we're talking about civil lawsuits, we're not talking about criminal offenses, but we're so quick to run into court instead of what we should be doing sometimes, is forgiving people and forgiving the debt. But the reason that sometimes we don't is because we just think we're so entitled that we want to get what we think we have and the other person has come to them And so we take him to court. Um, This whole entitlement thing is interesting. Look at this cover of Time magazine. This was a couple of years ago. But Time magazine had this feature uh, article uh, entitled, The Me, Me, Me Generation. Millennials are lazy, entitled narcissists who still live with their parents. That's the subtitle. You see her taking a selfie of herself, isn't it so wonderful? Okay. Now, I don't want to be bashing millennials because I love you. Uh, millennials, by definition, born 1980 to 2000. But in this article, Joel Stein, who wrote for Time magazine, just gave some stats. Now, at the end of the article, he says something nice. I'm going to summarize it nicely as well. But this is some of the reality on the stats of the millennial age. If you were born between 1980 and 2000, he said, here's the, the cold, hard data. He said, quote, the incidence of narcissistic personality disorder is nearly three times as high for people in their 20s as in the generation that's now 65 or older, according to the National Institutes of Health. Narcissistic personality disorder, three times what it is today for people in their 20s than those who are over 65. 58% more college students scored higher on a narcissism scale in 2009 than in 1982. This article came out in 2013. 58% more. Millennials got so many participation trophies growing up, right? See, when I was growing up, you only got a trophy if you actually won something. (laughs) It was a novel idea, but now today, I can remember the first time, this first time this happened, and all three of our kids played sports growing up, but the first time, for whatever reason, I remembered it was when Lindsay was playing soccer, and and her team didn't do well at all, but they had a pizza party, and the coach said, hey, we're going to have a pizza party. We got trophies, I was like, wait, wait a minute, coach. I, I didn't think we won any games this season. He goes, yeah, I know, but everybody gets a trophy. So, wait a minute, don't tell the kids that. Don't tell the kids that they're all getting trophies. This, oh, that's the thing we do now. So we, oh, we all give trophies. So we had a pizza party. Everybody got trophies. Hey, hey, we didn't win a game. Let's eat some pizza and hand out trophies. What in the world? What is happening? To, I remember just standing there eating pizza thinking, this is just freaky wrong. Just absolutely freaky wrong. Why are we giving out trophies? That's the trophy generation. So in the article, he says, Millennials got so many participation trophies growing up that a recent study showed that 40% believe they should be promoted every two years, regardless of performance. So in other words, getting trophies growing up in sports for not succeeding or winning makes millennials think when they get jobs that they should automatically get promotions every two years, even if they didn't earn it. They are fame-obsessed. Listen, three times as many middle school girls want to grow up to be a personal assistant to a famous person rather than being a senator. You know, a senator would be a more aspiring thing, I suppose, depending on your perspective on that. You know, politics is from two words, poly meaning people and tics meaning blood-sucking blood creatures. But anyway, <laughs> um, but it, but isn't that crazy? It's like middle school girls, instead of wanting to, I want to aspire to something great, I just rather be a personal assistant to somebody who's famous, all right? so convinced of their own greatness that the National Study of Youth and Religion found the guiding morality of 60% of millennials. Let me just tell you, according to studies, 60% of millennials, you know how they were guided in terms of their moral compass? It relates to whatever situation that they, quote, are able to feel what is right, end quote. Now, at the end of this lengthy article, Joel Stein ends up saying, but listen, I say all some of the raw data and some of the cold, hard facts, but he commends millennials being optimistic entrepreneurs, you know, seeing about how, like, the world is before them, being very creative and inventive and and all high-tech savvy and all this. And at the end of the article, he says, so, yes, we have all that data about narcissism and laziness and entitlement, but a generation's greatness isn't determined by data. It's determined by how they react to the challenges that befall them. And just as important by how we react, To them, Whether you think millennials are the new greatest generation of optimistic entrepreneurs or a group of 80 million people about to implode in a dwarf star of tears when their expectations are unmet depends largely on how you view change. Me, Joel Stein says, I choose to believe in the children. God knows they do, end quote. I read this quote, and this should challenge all of us in terms of are we more obsessed about ourselves or are we more focused on others? Do you climb a high mountain because you want to be able to see the world or you want the world to be able to see you? There is this obsession with self and and sometimes that can lead to this entitlement thing and that lends itself to why we sue people because we want, we want, we think, we deserve. Well, he goes on here in verse 9 and he says, Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed You were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And let me tell you why he's pointing out these things. He happens to list here ten things that he describes as wicked. Verse 9 is the word he uses. Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? And then he lists ten sinful behaviors. And by the way, four out of ten relate to sexual sin. Uh, whether he talks here about the sexually immoral. They have a King James Bible that says fornicators. That's sex before marriage. And then he talks about adulterers. It's obviously sex outside of marriage. Talks about male prostitutes. and He talks about homosexual offenders. You have to remember again, Corinth, this city, steeped in all kinds of immorality. Temple of Aphrodite stood there. It's the temple to the love goddess. And at any one time, there were a thousand temple prostitutes employed during the Roman Empire, in service of Aphrodite at the Temple of Aphrodite. The church at Corinth is influenced by the culture. Every church is going to be influenced by the culture. But the issue is, will we allow the culture to influence us, or will we influence the culture more? We will all be facing the reality of the culture trying to encroach upon the church, trying to shape the church, trying to influence the church. But the issue becomes, will the church rise up and be in influencer of the culture and so paul is saying you need to be aware of the fact that these kind of things are in your culture but that god calls these things sinful god calls sexual immorality any kind of sexual activity outside of the bounds of marriage between one man and one woman to be to be sinful he he adds to that the whole other stuff about um thieves and greedy and drunkards and slanderers and swindlers but four out of ten here sexual sins there, there's a lot of confusion in the first century Roman Empire, and there's a lot of confusion in the 21st century American culture about things related to sexuality. There's a lot of confusion. Not that it's brand new, it's just you know, being talked about more. There's, there's gender confusion, there's sexual identity confusion. You know, you know what's interesting? The whole term, even, sexual orientation, sexual orientation. The word orientation, orient, is from the Latin word Orients, meaning the rising east. You know, the sun rises in the east, and the Latin word orients means rising or east. It used to be before Google Maps that the way that you would orient yourself is to always find the rising sun, because the rising sun always would rise in the east. That is why Asia is sometimes called the orient, because it is in the East, from that same Latin word, from that same term. But in order for you to make sure you were walking in the right direction, you would have to find a fixed, reliable point of reference. And that would be the rising sun. So you would orient yourself to the rising sun. You know the reason why there is such confusion in our culture today is because too many people don't have a fixed reference point anymore. Is
1: the Apostle Paul's message to the church in Corinth was frank and powerful. They needed to make some changes. They knew the truth of Christ because Paul had spent time planting the seeds of truth. They had begun to walk in the ways of Jesus, but they had let lies taint their steps. Those lies are common still today. Is there something you've heard from a spiritual leader that just hasn't sat right in your soul? Don't let it take root. Instead, take it to the Bible and to your Heavenly Father. Allow Him to show you what is right and what isn't, and then grow in His perfect truth in love. We're so glad you joined us today on Cornerstone Connection. Pastor Gary Hamrick will continue teaching through 1 Corinthians when you join us next time. But for now, we'd like to invite you to visit cornerstoneconnection.cc to learn more about this ministry. You'll be able to hear past teachings, connect with us on social media, and learn more about the church this program originates from. If you're in the Leesburg area, we'd love to meet you. Come visit us this Sunday at 10, or eleven forty-five a.m. at Cornerstone Chapel. You'll find directions and more information on our website. Again, that's CornerstoneConnection.cc. We're excited to have you join us. Thanks for tuning in today, and we hope you'll join us again right here on Cornerstone Connection.